Hello, and welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jana Hill. And we're here to talk about a comic brave enough to ask the question, what if the Eternals were good? Excelsior. Now, frequent listeners who have been following (laughs) us as we go through the Eternals might be wondering, what does it take to make a good Eternals comic? Uh... I don't know if Jaina has a different opinion than me on that, but I think we've got our first ones. Yeah, there. I I liked. There was a comic that we read today that I liked, and there was a bunch of it that was uh, I questionable. <laughs> I feel like we're going to be saying that a lot throughout this entire thing. Yeah. Well, this one was a weird one. So first, we read a bunch of uh, what if comics, and this is like what if volume one, right? This is the original run, or is this? Yeah, I think it is. I think this is the like, original What If, yeah. Yeah, I just checked. It's, we, we had What If Volume 1, 23 to 27. And I don't know if our listeners have uh, read a lot of What If comics. Have you ever read much of this run of the original What If, Elias? No, and we actually read 23 to 30. Oh, 23 to 30. Well, yeah. I my notes abruptly trail off, but I'm pretty sure I read everything. We'll find out. Well, yeah, we'll find out. I'm- the good news of the What If issues is most of the eternal stuff it's like five pages each (laughs) true uh however i went and i read all of the eternal stuff um the secret of these what if uh sorry i read all the what if stuff as well as the eternal stuff but the (laughs) secret of what if comics in this era is that they're kind of (laughs) bad they're never as good as you want them to be like bad in concept or bad in execution or both i guess both well so what's really interesting to me is uh how so i read these comics originally we had a run of them when i was working at midtown comics Mm -hmm. and um i was reading them like in the back room on my break sometimes and i was like going through these old what if comics because it was cool i had never held them before and i was just marveling at how many of them aren't what ifs anymore they just like are comics oh like we one of the issues we read today was what if phoenix had not died <laughs> and that's kind of a big marvel plot point about phoenix not dying now and there was also one we read for today uh what if captain america became president which actually jonathan hickman wrote a whole ultimate comic about that oh i did not know that it's part of those hickman ultimates i'm always trying to get you to read but like does that count does the ultimates universe count at at the time in like 2010 i thought it counted okay your ultimates were, you know, it was big. It was not a second win then. What other ones did we read for today? Just like, um, what if uh, Gwen Stacy hadn't died? There's like a major Gwen Stacy character in comics and cartoons. Mm, and I wear true. her sweatshirt all the time. Um, so I just think it's funny that the what ifs are usually pretty good ideas for stories that are then executed really boring because it's like in the name of assuring the readers that the Marvel Universe that they have is the one that they want. Oh, it's kind of basically they turn into like cautionary tales where it's like, you didn't actually want this. Everything is worse. Yeah. And uh, usually everybody dies at the end of, an, of a what if. Um, and I don't know, just like sometimes it doesn't feel like they're actually playing at the what if concept, which they can with no consequences. So it's very frustrating. Mm. And you'd think with the, the Marvel multiverse consisting of every possibility you'd want to like legitimately explore these things right and that's not to say there have been a great what if comics since then there was a really excellent recent one that i don't think had a dud in it the uh most famous in that one being uh leo williams is uh what if magic became the sorcerer supreme oh yeah, yeah yeah um so that that was and that was there was not a bad comic in the bunch for those what ifs um, there was a one about uh, Loki and Thor swapping places that was really fun. There was also one about um, Ghost Rider um, marketing a heavy metal band. <laughs> I forgot about that one. Yeah, that was, wasn't that fun? That was like a lot of fun. That run, I thought. Yeah, and I know they're trying to kind of bring it back in some way. Um, Chip Zdarsky was heading up like basically an imprint or something because that's what that Spider's Shadow miniseries was in the last couple years. And he was doing the two-in-one, although that wasn't so much... Uh, oh, you're talking about, like, the uh, the life story and everything? No, not life story. Well, he did do life story. I think they've they folded that into the what-if imprint. Um, but they like he designed a brand-new logo. Um, oh, what was it called? Yeah, no, it was called Spider's Shadow. It was a miniseries, and it was 
I think the basic premise is what if Spider with what if Peter Parker became uh, Venom? Like if he never took off the symbiote. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! I remember this was coming out, and I was like, "I'm totally gonna read this when it's collected in trade." And then no one ever mentioned it to me again, and I lost track of it. Oh, I th- I thought it was a really good what if, like it did it what a really what good. if story should do. Yeah, well, there was also that recent one. Uh, Tom Taylor did that thing with like uh, I I don't even know what the what if I would describe the what if is. You know um, what the one I'm talking about? Dark Ages. Yeah, Dark Ages. How would you even like describe what Dark Ages is like? Um, it's like what not his if- best. Oh, I, I quite enjoyed Dark Ages. I thought it was a, kind of fun. Oh, it was still fun, but like not Tom Taylor's best work. No, I'm I'm uh, on the record as being a big fan of uh, Tom Taylor's. Yeah, I guess uh, the it because it's not he's doing his medieval what if over at DC. I guess the basic premise was. Do you remember the show Revolution? No. So it was a J.J. Abrams show. I think it was on NBC. It's either NBC or ABC. Um, the first season was pretty good. It had, you know, had a mystery box, a lot of interesting ideas and whatnot. And then the second season fell apart so hard, like a cookie dropped in milk, just uh, crumbled. This was in like that like weird rash of um, all of the uh, mystery box shows that came after Lost went off the air. Yeah, I think it was. Oh, it was twenty twelve. Um, was season one. Uh, it had Giancarlo Esposito and uh, the guy who played uh, Bella's dad in the Twilight movies. Oh, that guy's great. <laughs> yeah, so they were in it. I felt like that that idea, which is all the power goes out, no one really knows why, although in the Marvel Universe they have an explanation, and now we're watching the heroes try to survive without electricity being a thing. Yeah, and it's like a, got like a quasi-survivalist, uh, but like cool and marvel and sci-fi i don't know i like yeah, uh, it's steampunk yeah it's the uh, steampunk marvel is fun for me um so uh, i'm just gonna real fast i want to go through the what ifs that i read because you did not read the actual what if stories right you just read the no, uh i only the read the backups yep because that's what was collected in my trade um only one of these i no two of these i would recommend that were kind of fun um but what's really interesting and funny to me is just like how often these are later used for actual story ideas. So the first one was, what if the Hulk's girlfriend Jarella hadn't died? And that one's a real dud because I don't think people much care about Jarella no more, right? I don't even know who that is. Was that the microverse princess? It was indeed. Yeah. Oh no, that means Hirokala appeared. Oh my god, I warned you away from Hirokala. He's the worst. <sighs> then there was the delightful, what if Aunt May was bitten by a radioactive spider? And that was one of the few what ifs that wasn't entirely misery all the way through. It was like pretty fun and funny. Wait, wait, wait. So, <laughs> yeah, oh, the from the Spider Verse. It's that Aunt May. Was there an Aunt May uh, Spider Man and Spider Verse? Yeah, I, I, just the spy- the Aunt May in that kicked ass. Well, not in the movie. In the comics, there was oh, a right, what right, if right. There was... Auntie May. I think it was. Yeah, Auntie May as like Spider Woman. Um, yeah. So yeah, got used in the comics later again. It might have even been from this very what if story. Now that I think about it, there was also what if Spider Man had rescued Gwen Stacy? That's a miserable one. What if Thor had to fight Odin over Jane Foster, which is just as bad as it sounds? Ooh. Then there was the pretty fun what if Captain America became president? It does, but like again, it doesn't ma- maximize on the possibilities because like the first thing he does is solve the energy crisis by like having a satellite that solves the energy crisis. You know. <laughs> Okay. And then it all falls apart because Red Skull does an evil thing. But it's not, like, very connected to the presidency. It's just, like, as a superhero, Captain America would be the perfect president and everything would be better. Until Red Skull destroyed the world. Huh. Very Um, weird. Very weird. But, like, kind of fun. Kind of fun to watch play out. Then Mm -hmm. there's, what if Man-Thing kept Ted Salas' brain? And Mm. I kind of like Man-Thing. He just appeared on a very cute Marvel Halloween special that I watched. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, so I was that uh, unhappy to hang out with Man Thing and Ted Salas, although it really read like Swamp Thing. And at this point, Swamp Thing's already like kind of established. Yeah, I, I was going to say when you described that, I was like, OK, I think I've got a better shape of, of what the story was like. But when you say what if Man Thing kept Ted Salas's brain, all I could think was of was the like B sci-fi movie Donovan's brain just floating in a jar. I like no- telepathically. I know movies. I'm like, I, I roll deep with weird movies, and you always pull out, like, obscure sci-fi that I've never heard of, and that's incredible. <laughs> Good. 
good. That movie is weird. Really weird. It sounds really weird. Yeah. Is he also a plant person? No, but he mind controls people because he's a brain in a jar. I mean, yeah, that's what you got to do when you're a brain in a jar. Yeah. I've always no, said. but like that that's the weirdest part. Because he's a brain in the jar, he has mind control powers. Oh, just like, yeah, that's some real Stanley uh, science in the 60s. Yep. I, I can I bet someone at the Marvel office saw that movie at one point and tried oh, to make one hundo. A, a story out of it. Yeah, these are the dork. This is the era of dorks who like movies like that. Yeah. Um, the last couple are What If Phoenix Had Not Died, which, like, that's most of what X-Men is, has been about <laughs> pretty much since, uh, like, 1980-something. Yeah. A couple years after this, what if? What if Ghost Rider and Johnny got separated, um, which, again, happens regularly in modern Ghost Rider comics and is more interesting than this at what if? Huh. What if Matt Murdock became an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Kind of fun. Oh. Uh, the answer is everything's terrible, though. Oh. What if the Avengers were last superheroes on Earth was kind of a snooze and also felt like a weird take on the original Guardians of the Galaxy? Oh, okay. And finally, it, the last one in the issues we read for today is what if Spider-Man's clone had lived? Which, like, That I did know was the name of one of these issues. Yeah, and like that's the premise of a lot of the things that happen in... Um, Spider-Man life story that's also been there's been a bunch of uh, Ben Riley was a whole thing about what if the clone had lived like mm-hmm. uh, the whole clone saga. Every Ben Riley story basically answers this question more interestingly than this. Wow, that that's saying something. I remember I now love Ben Riley thanks to uh, Spider-Man Beyond. Yeah, but like the clone saga is pretty bad. Not original. I mean, the original clone saga, too, but uh, clone saga is bad, but it ain't boring. Oh, that's a fair point. Like, Clone Saga is wild. That actually reminds me, I think I just saw, I don't remember which comic, Judas Traveler is back. In Spider-Man? In, I don't know if it's in Spider-Man, but I saw him somewhere in a Marvel issue recently. Maybe it was She-Hulk. My, my goodness. Uh, yeah, Judas Traveler was due for a comeback, right? I, I don't know. He could have faded away forever and no one would have been missing him. No one in Marvel uh, fades away for, forever. That's what this whole miniseries is about. Ah, oh, that's that's a good point. Right? We're talking about the Eternals in the year of our Lord 2022. Ah, uh, that's a good point. Anyway, um, what if issues are never as good as you hoped they would be? A couple of those were fun, and I read them. I Because I read them. I, I read them quickly. I had read them before, and some mm. of them were okay. uh, still made me laugh. But now we should talk about the Eternal stuff. So this Eternal stuff originally got published as backup stories, right? Yep backups for over what was it seven issues eight issues so there are eight different backup stories some of them are one-offs you know it's just five pages you got your thing and then it's done uh, others are like two or three quote-unquote issue arcs um, telling untold stories from the marvel universe and specifically in this case of different eternals stuff i don't really know where where do you want to start well we can start at the beginning, but I guess I, I take it from your tone at the beginning. So you liked these stories, right? Yeah, I did, actually. I found them far more compelling than anything we read in the Thor comics. The Thor stuff was, I think it was just so overwrought. I couldn't I couldn't do it. And I, I like that kind of stuff sometimes, but it was, it was too much. It was too much. It didn't really go anywhere. And then we got the Ring Saga stuff, and I checked out completely. But yeah. this is the kind of, like, bonkers sci-fi opera nonsense that I love. Well, it feels it feels biblical and, like, mythic in a way yeah. that the Eternals... Ha- and that's what's really been missing from the Eternals, is that these are characters from myth, but they feel uh, not mundane, just kind of, like, uh, derivative. Mm-hmm. But, but this tone definitely feels much better for the Eternals. For this, sure. like epic mythological part of the fabric of our reality their legacy touches us in ways humans can't comprehend every day and it's kind of in the background we don't really notice it or we're not supposed to notice it but you can see how things you know work how things end up tying back in well and i'll tell you what what worked best for me especially in these issues this is what's called the dreaming celestial saga in the collection right yes so the Dreaming Celestial Saga is definitely where Kieran Gillen has been pulling from in the contemporary Eternals comics. Mm-hmm. For sure. And um, and I was keeping track of, like, because I've read those pretty recently, and we just got done with uh, Avengers X-Men 
Eternals Judgment Day just wrapped up where when, when we were recording. And I um, I enjoyed all those. So I was really fun. It was fun for me to like trace the continuity more than I maybe enjoyed the issues themselves. <laughs> I had no idea that uh, Uranus was a character here. I thought he, yeah. he had been made up by Karen Gillan or something, you know. Like, I didn't realize how tied into the fabric of, like, Eternals lore he was. What I especially like there, though, is... So, in my collection, there was an introduction by Peter Gillis, one of the writers. Uh, and he's basically ta- he talked about, like, what they wanted to do with all of these and, like, how it worked. And they were like, we had some problems. And a lot of those problems were like, but what about the Inhumans? What about this? What about that? And they wanted to merge in Jim Starlin's Titan stuff, which apparently had not been really tied into the main Marvel Universe in any meaningful way. Yeah, up until that point, uh, Starlin was using those books to tell like really isolated sci-fi, like weird sci-fi in a very particular to him style. Yep. And yeah, it just like so, and no one really had wanted to use those characters because they were so specific to his tone, which is something I think you see a lot in shared universe superhero stuff. Yeah, for better or for worse, I think sometimes that's really good, and sometimes you're just like, well, that's a bit of a problem. But I want to, I want to take these. Can we take these from like the very beginning? Yes. Of um, so the first because the first what if starts with the first celestial host, and this really feels like a Marvel creation myth. Yeah, and it feels like the kind of retcon that we're very happy to now have. What do you mean by that? Like, when we read the the Jack Kirby Eternal stuff, he was, you know, dancing around all the Chariot of Fire stuff and, and working with that. But we never really got, like, a dramatization of, well, what did the Celestials do when they came over? And here, they kind of pull back on the specifics, and we get kind of the idea of well each of the celestials has a personality we don't really understand them but they all have these personalities and that was something that was uh, you know pulled out and pulled apart more in like the the thomas thor stuff at the beginning and then kind of at the end but here we really see how the eternals the deviants and the humans it wasn't just like oh these three things were created and that's how it is and that's how they will be but each of the three eternals not eternal celestials that picked a group that created a group did so with a specific purpose they're like all right this is what i'm gonna they're trying to do and i really like that about this it's kind of that you know it's it's retconning it in some ways but it's giving it more depth in another it makes the celestials uh, like the thing i was complaining about through those thor books where like uh, the celestials were existing simultaneously and separate to the one above all and the other gods mhm and this feels this feels plausible within the boundaries of the marvel like this doesn't feel like it contradicts anything this this feels additive mm-hmm. um and it sets up something that i think when done well i really like but there's a, a lot of people don't do well which is when like these you're telling a shared universe story that covers you know like a zillion years of history and cosmos and stuff so you and you want to make things connected because that's what stories are uh is a bunch of connected stuff and events so um but then like uh you but there's a danger you could take away from the character because like spider-man works as spider-man because he chose to be spider-man if it turns out that there was like the eternal spider and he was like a had a genetic destiny thread through fate that would suck yeah, but it but this this these stories don't uh, verge to there. I really like they're very sensitive to like the fact that they're in the shared universe. They seem like they want to mop up continuity more than the last two stories we read. <laughs> For sure. And um, I like the uh, subtle implications that there is like a magical destiny. And the best part is that it's got. If someone ever wanted to get that like weird tone of science and magic that Marvel is specific to Marvel that Marvel does so well. This is now a thing I would totally recommend. Yeah. And it feels less icky in in that, like, eugenics way that a lot of those other comics held, you know, had baked in. This still has that, but I don't know. There was just something about the way the narration was and the way the art works, you know, as much as it can. It, it kind of it softens all those the the implications a little bit you know the like the the deviants aren't just evil they are just they're very adaptable like that's their point 
And there's still like there's still that like cosmic stuff. You know, the deviants go underground and they're warlike or whatever. But then the humans kind of. It's interesting though that the humans kind of suck. But then the Eternals, you know, the Pinnacles, they live on the the mountains and they are perfect and all that. It helps that they're not all drawn as blonde uh, this time around. And like yeah. generally the um, because like uh. When we were uh, reading the Kirby Eternals, it was like uh, the Eternals were all these like blonde, marble-esque statue people, and the humans were like brown-haired, like mean Jewish-looking people. And then the uh, Deviants like uh, took that Jewish look to the max and were like uh, had like wild hair and big beards. Yeah. Um, and so just uh, the artwork, I want I'm complimenting the artwork in these stories for like really toning that down, and I think being truer to like both the story and to Kirby's. Like him, truer legacy of of like a like I loved all this shit with a uh, Gaminon the Gatherer had his uh incub tubes just like all these like weird sci fi devices as they are um, kidnapping and experimenting on like proto hominids on ancient Earth. Oh yeah, for sure. It's also funny to think about this in the context of um Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> How so? Do you know how Conan fits into Marvel continuity? I I mean, he's part of the Hyborian Age, which is some long-forgotten era, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, so specifically, um, recorded human history goes back maybe 5,000 years in our Uh worlds, right? Um, And the Hyborian Age was like an Iron Age, maybe Bronze Age level of human civilization, that happened 50,000 years ago, and all records of which have been lost. Okay. But specifically, it's like an order of magnitude bigger. It's not 5,000 years back, it's 50,000 years back. But they're mm. in, like, castles, and they've domesticated horses and whatnot. Yeah. And I and I, I don't know definitively, but I think the reason that number is given is to fit it into Marvel continuity, so you can do Conan stuff in the past without necessarily, like, affecting current characters and stories that much. And okay. so that if mm. Conan gets ripped out of Marvel's hands, as it has now twice in recent memory... Um, copyright yeah. wise, um, you can ignore those stories and they're like, uh, you know, they're 50,000 years ago. They occupy a weird space. But since this is the beginning of life on the planet, I feel like I really want to see a story about Conan and the Celestials. Huh. Conan and the Eternals, right? There is a good match. The Eternals lived forever. Conan was 50,000 years ago. Let's have, uh, how does Conan the Barbarian and Ajax uh, hit it off? <laughs> uh, if they do. They more likely hit each other. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I know we're spending a lot of time on just this one story but i just i i'm very happy that the celestial who presided over the human part was oneg um what is what is the exact translation of oneg that's a word that i use all the time and don't actually know the uh, literal translation of um i don't know if it's if it's hebrew or yiddish i think it's hebrew to so it's just, jews it just specifically means the the casual festival uh, after, okay. after after the you know Friday night services, but what's like the literal definition? Okay, well, so, so it I, literally means pleasure <laughs> or delight. Inter- yeah, that's interesting because so the way my like secular Jewish friends would colloquially use it is for like a dinner party type setting. Yeah, um, and I and I knew it had to do with Shabbat, and then I, I it suddenly occurred to me that I didn't know which part of Shabbat it was. So that's very it's called like it means like joy. The joy, yeah, lovely. Delight. A bun- I mean, so I'm looking. A bunch of these celestials actually have um, names from because we got Nezer the Calculator, which is clearly ne- uh, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Yeah. Um, Gamanon is Gamanemnon. <laughs> um, I know that uh, Har- Hargan Harjan is something, but I cannot remember. But Tiamat, is the who the the titular dreaming celestial, um, is from Tiamat. Which I mostly know because of Final Fantasy games. <laughs> the the name is also familiar. I don't remember where from though. Uh, Tiamat is, I think, Mesopotamian. I could be wrong about, but like a uh, that that far back ancient civilization, um, and was like the dread dragon of myth. Oh yes, which which rules, which is cool. That I'm into is that. Very cool. I'm into dread dragons and myth. Um, but as you were saying earlier, the the bigger story that goes through a couple of these backups is the story of Uranus. Yeah, yeah. Um, we get kind of the an establishment of the first Eternals, which I found really interesting. I keep seeing interesting. Yeah, sell me I, on this. This I, this I was less interested in. Well, I, 
and maybe not like Uranus's actual battle. It just felt very stock sci-fi. But the idea that the Eternals did not come out as eternal, like they were made to be kind of, you know, they, they live longer and they have powers, but because, you know, because of this genetic tampering, it also, also now the thing about it, that walks back that, uh, you know, Icarus being like, well, if you had a thousand years, you could do this too, kind of stuff. Yeah, when I'm just trying to, you know, I don't know if I like either of those options, but I don't know which is better. I like here being that, you know, they're not actually eternal until, you know, some science bullshit happens and, you know, Kronos becomes one with the universe and everyone gains this magic power or whatever. I found the Uranus stuff uh, more interesting than just like uh, the, at the beginning of this, the fir- when they're doing the first Eternals. Mm hmm. That's just like, uh, um, I'm so sorry. I have a bunch of wiki pa- pages open and there's banner ads that are recycling. Oh, God. And all of them are for local Republican candidates. And some of them are truly disturbing. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid of many of those advertisements. They are not good. They're very eye catching. And uh, some of them are pretty racist by implication. Don't like that that, te- that picture one bit. So the Eternals becoming Eternal. I, I yeah, I, I like the moral thing, but just like that didn't feel as mythic as the first part of the issue with like, it was just like a box that he opened and like light came out or whatever. Yeah. And it, it was kind of just, this was them trying to fold in the Titan stuff. You can feel the, the, the real world machinations on the story more here than you could in the first one. Yeah, I, that's I didn't that thing you said about the uh, the beginning of your book is uh, your trade collection was interesting because I didn't read that I didn't have that in what I read, mm. and uh, so I didn't real I realize how much that retcon was. But now that you're saying it, it's so clear that that's the the goal of the story is to. And it's funny because like Thanos is one of the most uh, interesting parts of the Eternals in modern comics, I think. Yeah, and this is where they're just like, man, we gotta we gotta give the Eternals some juice. We gotta give them a good Jim Starlin villain. <laughs> yeah they gotta tie him into the the Kree and then also this is how they start to to bring the inhumans in it's like it's all due to it all comes back to the eternals which all go back to the celestials well and the inhumans were uplifted by the Kree, who are kind of repeating what the uh what the celestials did to the eternals yeah but they were only able to do it because you know uranos was an asshole to his friend that kind of stuff. You know, it's a lot of, you know, Bronze Age sci-fi nonsense. And I, 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 like I said, I just love it. There's not a lot to it. It's a lot of fighting, a lot of pontificating. You've got your big evil villain with his big evil beard. You've got kind of the, the conflicted person who you, who was following him. Um, but this is kind of where you get the that war that we were talking about in the new Eternals comics about the... right. The Uranosian exclusion or whatever. I don't remember what they called it. So I, I, I guess I just like the Kieran uh, Gillen aesthetics better than the Bronze Age stuff. But um, seeing this as like inspiration to the, the contemporary comics was really fun. And it yeah. was fun like because uh, Uranos was such a scary bad guy for Judgment Day. And because there have been flashbacks to the, like, he retold this story basically in those one shots. Mm hmm. And also, there's an element that he brings in that I really like um, thematically uh, that is that hasn't been created yet, which has to do with how there's a schism of Eternals who just believe that there should be a hundred Eternals and they should just reincarnate forever. And there's Eternals who, like, want to have separate children who can grow up. Mm-hmm. I think that's, like, a really interesting sci-fi schism that you can get at some, like, cool elemental human conversations that way. And yeah. I was interested to find out that it wasn't here from the beginning. Like, maybe by implication, but definitely it wasn't the intent of the story. No, and the, you could tell there was, like, he needs a reason to leave, so he's just going to leave. The Alars, who is eventually uh, both Thanos and, as we will discuss later, Eros's father. Um, the, basically, the I guess the basic premise of that story was we had Kronos and Uranos taking, a, you know, pulling from that from Greek myths now more. Um, they fight uh, because Uranus is evil and Kronos is good science man. That's basically the only motivation there. Like, Uranus really loves war. Kronos doesn't. 
they fight. Yeah, this was my that this was my least favorite element of it, yeah. just like how reductive the central conflict was, and that's why I like that little, that extra lo- layer that Kieran Gillen puts on it later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their their conflict is resolved, and then they both kind of go away. They're either exiled or become one with the universe. So then it passes on to the next generation, which is Zerus and Alars, who are brothers and Cronus's sons. Alars just kind of fucks off because he's needed to fill in the Starling mythology. <laughs> he just leaves. He's gone. Uh, we check in with him a little bit, but then we followed Zerus, and that's kind of that's where Karen Gillan fills in. Like what was the reason that they split? Other than, like, why were they fighting? Like the, the comic says they fight, but I don't think we really saw why. We saw a bunch of this story from another perspective in some of the Guardian stuff we were reading, if you recall. Oh, yeah. Because Moondragon was raised by Alars, and um, when she dies, um, her uh, Phyla goes to, uh, with and is, like, hanging out with Alars for an issue. Mm-hmm. Some other characters uh, who we'll encounter in these stories appeared in those Guardians comics, too. You'll have to point them out when we get there. I'm excited to. (laughs) Before we get there, the final three what-if issues contained, uh, or final two, I guess, contained the Inhuman story, which was another, they were like, well, how did this uh, Inhumans, uh, what's it called? city get to where it was and how did they not notice the Eternals? And the answer is, oh, they knew each other, but Black Bolt just didn't say anything. Yeah, this I hated because I did. I, I'm the, the exact asshole who wants this to be addressed, and they did it. It was stupid. Just like if you <laughs> didn't have a good answer for this, maybe just don't do anything. I thought it was fine. I was like, whatever. I, it's silly, but it, it's exactly what I expected. Oh my god, I'm about to get sucked into becoming an editor on the Marvel Wiki. I, I like. I really want to. I'm going into how they explain some of this stuff, and I'm like, oh no, I need to add to this. <laughs> Don't do it. Do do it after the show. I love I like love Blackagar Boltagon. Happy to see his silent face. Yes, I agree. There was also a bunch of that because of the Inhuman stuff. There was a bunch of Cree stuff. Just I have I just looking at my notes. Does anybody like the Cree sentries? They have a fun design. I just feel like they come back like way too often and for like way too little impact. Everyone's always rebuilding the Cree sentries, and then they're always losing them, and then they wake up and cause trouble. They need they just, need like, the big beat 'em ups. You need the big beat-em-up robots. I'm pro-big beat-em-up robot. I was weaned on the X-Men animated series where all Wolverine did was dice up Sentinels. <laughs> Can't have them dicing up people. No, Certainly no, no. Certainly not in 1992 on Fox Kids. No. Um, but just like, someone think of something like clever to do with the uh, sentries. They just keep on showing up and everyone's like, oh no, the Kree sentries are these powerful robots. They're just jobbers. Yeah, that's that's very true. They're just there to get buried by the real heroes. Just like, I, I, I never buy them as a convincing threat because I've never seen them win a single fight. Speaking of jobbers, why don't we take a small break and then we'll come back with the, the rest of the stuff that we got to talk about. I love it. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on MultiversityComics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. Hey, welcome back. Uh, We're talking Eternals. More Eternals. Forever Eternals. Uh, But before we go back to that and start kind of splintering off from our very Eternals-focused named stuff, uh, I want to give all the credits because there are a lot of them. There oh, are. boy, there are a lot of them. All right, let's go. Deep breath. So, the writers. We have Mark Gruenwald for What If number 23 and then 25 through 28. Ralph Macchio for What If number 24. Peter B. Gillis for What If number 29 and 30. And Iron Man annual number 6. And then Roger Stern for Avengers 246 through 248. On pencils, we had Al Milgram, who did uh, the Avenger, 
all three Avengers stories, although he's credited as doing breakdowns on issue 247 instead of just pencils. Um, Ron Wilson did What If 23 and then 25 through 30, with Rich Buckler doing What If number 24 and Luke McDonald on Iron Man Annual number 6. The inkers were Chick Stone uh, for What If number 23 and 24, Alan Cooperberg on What If number 25, Bruce Patterson on What If 26 through 28, the legendary Joe Sinat on What If number 29 and 30, and then all of the Avengers issues. He was credited as the finisher for... Uh, 20, 247. And then Roy Richardson, who did the Iron Man annual number six. Colorists, we had Carl Gafford on What If number 23, 27 through 29, and Iron Man annual number six. Ed Hannigan for What If 24 and 26. Uh, Nell Yomtov on What If 25. Glennis Ween on What If 30. Christian Scheel on Avengers 246 and 247. And Juliana Fer- Ferreter on Avengers number 248. For our letter- letterers, we had Michael Higgins on What If 23. John Morelli on What If 24 through 28, Tom Orzachowski on What If number 29 and 30, uh, Diana Albers on Iron Man number 6, and Avengers number 248, and then Jim Novak on Avengers number 246 and 247. In my collection, the art and color restoration was credited to Linda Caranda for the What If issues and All Thumbs Creative for Avengers and Iron Man. Whoa. Wow, if there's any justice in the world, everybody listening to this just, like, pulled over their cars and are now wildly applauding. (laughs) I can hope. The fun part about some of these credits are, if you're looking through the issues, you've got, like, Tom Orzachowski's credited as just Orz, and, uh, who is credited? Uh, And then Carl Gaffer is just, like, credited as Gaff. Oh my god, yeah, old comic credits are so difficult and annoying. They really didn't care back then. No, and, well, really that's because you're a librarian and you like solving these like uh, literary mysteries. <laughs> well, in this case, it helped. They gave it. They actually gave a complete breakdown at the beginning, which is very helpful. Wow, I need to check out this nice trade you were looking at. I was. Um... Yeah, it's new. It came out in 2020. Ooh, I yeah, the, I was reading an older one and um, and go and online. Okay, yeah. So now we're back to talk about Iron Man Annual Number Six. So what was going on in Iron Man at this time? Oh my god, I need to know what was going on in Iron Man. So this is like the Jim Rhodes <laughs> era of Iron Man. Yeah, 1983. Pro- yeah, 1983. And uh, this is probably the... Iron Man is not a character who has very many good comics, if any at all. Um, we could talk that out one day. Yeah, you're, um, but... you're insulting my friend's favorite superhero. Iron Man's a great character. He just uh, not a lot of good comics titled Iron Man. Okay, that's fair. In the many years uh, he's been a character at Marvel. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I own a, the whole collection of the Matt Fraction Iron Man, which I like. It's aged weirdly. <laughs> which is the case with Iron Man a lot of the time, because he's very political. He's very tied to current events. But mm. this era here in the um in the 80s, I think is the kind of, until more recently was the Iron Man run you would give to people of like the classic pre-MCU Marvel runs. Interesting. Um, it is interesting because this one is so um, unusual. What I like about it is it's definitely, like, political. He's in Holland, I think, at the beginning, right? Um, I believe so. Just, like, I... The the different places he went to on Earth, like, looked more specific than places we've been seeing in a lot of comics recently. Yeah, the backgrounds were also less... Interestingly, the places were more specific, The ba- but the backgrounds were less specific. Like, the art... I thought they did more with less. Yeah, they did more with like, they had a lot of like blue and pink voids and and whatnot. The the feel of the comic was very different, like from the get go. Even though the character, you know, people looked like people, and like there wasn't a wildly different style, but you could kind of tell that this was a different type of story than what was being told in Avengers or in the What Ifs. Yeah, which I found fun. Iron Man at this time, I feel like, is more like a kind of an espionage book. He's like a yeah. secret agent feeling type thing. And he deals with, like, a mostly political Earth threats, which is why a diversion like the Eternals, where suddenly uh, he's, like, batting way above his power level, is uh, is so exciting. I, I guess it's also worth mentioning that um, most of the characters that you just mentioned in the last section, like Thanos and uh, Alars and uh, Eros and all those guys, mm-hmm. were originally introduced in the pages of Iron Man by Jim Starlin. Oh, I didn't know that. 
that's where he was cooking up some of those ideas, you know, like when you're doing the uh, lesser selling books so they kind of don't look at what you're doing. <laughs> but a lot of those characters debuted in Iron Man, so there's sort of a history of them showing up in Iron Man books. And every single time, um, uh, it, it feels like a special episode where he's doing something unusual. Ah, I mean, an annual is the place to do it. I'm pretty sure this is also the era of Iron Man that um, this famously weird image is, if you want to look at the... Our chat image. Oh, I'm, Tell I'm people what you're seeing. I'm afraid. Let's see. <laughs> uh, someone, uh, it's cropped, so I think it's Deadpool, is holding what I presume is the Cosmic Cube, but the center of the image is, there's a background, it looks like a city at night, New York City, uh, and Thanos is in a helicopter that says Thanos on the back, and he's just kind of like waving. That's a more recent issue, but the, the Thanos copter is a real vehicle that he flew in class and comics as well. Oh my god. Um, he was, there was some really goofy thing. Thanos was like a cool, scary, evil, and goofy all at once. Yeah, this is really goofy Thanos. That's, that's weird. It's so weird he to me. He looks like a Happy Meals toy. He, yeah, it does. Oh my god. Well, I'm, I'm glad I got to tell you about that. Well, that's, so that's some of what's going on, uh, right now. That's the, that really set the vibe of Iron Man. Um, okay. this issue was fine. What's so interesting is up until now, the Eternals felt like they were trying to find a place. They were trying to find where they belonged. And now they're like, I don't know. The Eternals are like weird mythic aliens who show up and mess up your day sometimes. Yeah. I, it, they're, they're very much a MacGuffin here. Uh, this is very focused on the deviants. They've kidnapped all the Eternals after the end of the Thor stuff. You know, Zerus, they were mourning Zerus's death. Uh, he died. He is no longer eternal. He is dead. Whoopsie daisy. Um, I like my, my boy Crow showed up. I was happy to see Crow. Yep. It was nice to see him too. It was nice also to kind of see him be this conflicted villain. Like he's clearly being slotted into a villain space, but he stands in contrast to the great Toad, who's, you know, basically their dictator. And then also the other just random guards who are, you know, complaining about being told to run by their ungrateful boss. It felt it felt very like office politicky instead of the the like big proclamations of you know what we were getting in the Kirby stuff, which makes sense, right? Because uh, Tony Stark and Jim Rhodes are hanging out in a lot more offices. Uh huh. Thor. Yeah. Thena and the Eternals still kind of stink, even if Thena is right <laughs> about Crow being like, you can't just kidnap people. Um, he's right about the kidnapping. She, uh, She's right about the kidnapping, too. Um, but uh, what did you think of Rhodey as Iron Man? Because I feel like there's been like a big effort in recent years to really associate him with War Machine. But like he was legitimately Iron Man for quite a long time. I like him as Iron Man, actually. I like also here, I guess it's early enough that he's still kind of feeling conflicted. You know, he's like, he isn't the big tech guy. He doesn't really know what he's doing in the same way. And I like that tension between him, the suit, and the the other stuff. It doesn't feel like his wins come easy. And that's a good place to be. Yeah, that uh, that's all true. That It's nice to uh, kind of like downpower your superhero and have to build them back up. That's why everyone likes the first superhero movie more than the fourth. Yeah. And uh, I also like that this era of Iron Man, the suit of armor feels so much more like tactile and and like conceivable. Mm -hmm. It's not just like a cloud of CGI nanoparticles that can do whatever the plot demands. Like uh, there's all you there when he's in the suit of armor, you feel like he's trapped in the suit of armor. Like you cannot feel his claustrophobia. And um, and like uh, his his limbs feel and look like weighty. In this way that I feel like a contemporary Iron Man, he's just zipping around effortlessly. Mm -hmm. I like the view, this, the views we get from inside the the helmet, just through these these like square slits. You could really see the thickness of the suit. Yeah, it's um, it's like it's like analog Iron Man for the yeah. analog age. Even though his entire suit is basically three D printed by this, you know, computer that's talking back to him. Yeah, but even that, for some reason, felt more tactile than, like, computers we have now. It's because they were giant buttons. And just, like, text on a screen. <laughs> Nothing else. 
Yeah. So um, overall, I would say this Iron Man issue uh, was kind of underwhelming and it did not do much about the Eternals, but it's just interesting to see what an average Eternals issue looks like now Mm -hmm. in the mid 80s. Yeah. And it's a bridge between the Roy Thomas era to what they are going to become. It's placing them within the Marvel Universe more specifically instead of trying to like kind of wrap up some of the ideas from from what Jack Kirby left dangling. Yeah. And also what the introduction basically is saying, he, it, the introduction talks about this and he's like, well, also in this era, like we'd feed things through five different books. He's like, we tried to destroy the cosmic cube forever. We tried to get rid of it, but it just wouldn't die. <laughs> that was in the uh, introduction to your trade again. Yeah. Not like in those exact words, but that was the sentiment underneath it. He's like, we tried to get rid of the cosmic cube. We had this thread that went through like five different books, you know, just kind of in the background, it tread bounced from book to book and then it got resolved here uh but then it it came back it kept coming back because he's like it's the ultimate MacGuffin. that's so relatable to me i just like uh i too would wish we could get rid of the cosmic cube but i know we can't yep yep so on to avengers where the first page gives me the greatest culture shock ever (laughs) yeah tell say more so marvel comics lives on a sliding time scale especially now um, I forget what they call this type of thing. Was it a specific reference where... What is specific? So in this case, in this story, uh, Scarlet Witch and the Vision are meeting with uh, Ronald and Nancy Reagan. You know, they're the right. president and first lady of the United States because this is the 80s. Uh, because of the sliding timescale, this technically happened probably like five years ago in the current Marvel universe. So, and if you, if you like sliding timescale stuff and just like thinking about it and it drives you crazy, uh, Al Ewing has delightful times with the, uh, sliding timescale in ultimates. Ooh, I, I still like have the, to read that. The weight of the importance of different plot beats will like warp space and time and drag it towards them. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. Al, that is a good comic. Elias. I well, if it's an Al Ewing comic, it's probably pretty good. Maybe we'll do that uh, after Eternals as our first book club or something. Maybe, but yeah, I but like the way they explain it away is basically, you know, the Marvel universe. If you see any reference to the real world, pretend that it's you know not really Ronald Reagan anymore. It's whoever the president was five years back, but. You know, the event still happened. It was just with a different president. Oh, I really don't like retconning the story with Trump and Melania. Yeah, but like that kind of stuff. Like that's that's how they handle it when you've got a specific reference. I guess you can uh, look at that as a reason not to read the comic. But as you're saying, I completely agree. It's like a, it's a delightful anachronism. It's really weird. Yeah, but I mean, sometimes it doesn't work when you've got like a home phone. <laughs> uh, well... Yeah, it just, but it does work. That's the same thing with like uh, Iron Man, I'm sure, has a phone in there, like a big telephone on his shoulder. Oh, that's true. He probably did. He almost certainly had a car phone. <laughs> Tony Stark almost definitely invented oh, the car phone. Oh, 100%. I wanted to say, though, about these Avengers issues, mm-hmm. I loved these. These yes. were so fun. I think I just like West Coast Avengers. I think West Coast Avengers is a good idea. And this felt more like West Coast Avengers than Avengers Avengers of the era? Yeah, um, including at the beginning, they're uh, they're kind of like looking over at the West Coast Avengers, still getting established on the mm-hmm. West Coast. Yeah. But West Coast Avengers, I feel like, uh, from what I've read and from other... It's like a lot more of like a workplace sitcom. Uh-huh. Uh, where it's understood that between the scenes, these characters are like going home and going back to their lives. And then these are the people they work with every day and they spend a lot of time with. Mm-hmm. And so you get like a lot of fun character humor with it. And in this story, particularly, it's about a, a member of the Avengers whose profile is rising. And I kind of want to talk about a little bit as Star Fox. Mm-hmm. Do a barrel roll. <laughs> what was weird when I was reading these issues is how naturally I just kind of fell into it. I was like, oh, yeah, these are the Avengers. It just feels natural. It doesn't feel like sometimes when I read current Avengers or even like when I was reading the Hickman Avengers thing, I'm like, why are these people the team? Like, why is this the main team? But here I'm just like, oh, yeah, that that feels like a team. This is a very eclectic mix of people. And it always feels in this era of Avengers like um, 
you know, like there's like a weird demands. We're like, oh yeah, and then T'Challa got called away for this, and we wanted to fill that spot, but Henry Peter Gyrick was interrupting. So we just like there's all the, it's it's the office politics, like you said, and like mm-hmm. um and the politics politics. Yeah, She Hulk is part of the Fantastic Four, and we've got we've got suddenly just this aside to Monica Rambeau at her house. I love that part. So it's Monica Rambeau coming out as the superhero to her parents. It was great. Yeah. And it was just like a great scene. Monica Rambeau in the 80s is also so good. And I kind of feel like uh, we're not much doing right by her a lot of the time, except in Spider-Man Beyond. She was great in Spider-Man Beyond. Yeah. I'm I'm sad the Spider-Man Beyond era did not continue as it was. We'll see. We'll see if it com- comes back in some oh, I, they, way. Yeah, I, I, it, it did very well. They know that people liked it. Oh, yeah. Well, no wonder Zeb Wells is writing Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, which we'll have to spend another episode talking about, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about Star Fox. So Star Fox has been in a bunch of recent comics, which I assume you've read, yep. with the uh, Judgment Day stuff. Mm-hmm. He's finally made his his triumphant return, but apparently for a while he was pretty maligned. Uh, I don't see it here, but... Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about. So like, what, what baggage are you taking in, and what are you walking away from this story with about Star Fox? And then I'll tell you about his reputation. I mean, I only know that he had some some pretty icky reputations because of his powers, uh, and I can extrapolate from the description of his powers, which is basically being so charming he can convince you to do anything, but like there are limits on it. Like Basically, you, you're rolling a constitution saving throw every time he tries. Yeah, it's like a mild hypnosis, hypnotic yeah. suggestion kind of thing. Unlike, like, if you take it to the next logical extreme, you've got the Purple Man, who is real gross. Right, and it is like the scariest, most un- upsetting version of this superpower. Yes. Um, but but so, like, the line between how you're writing Star Fox and how you're writing the Purple Man, I feel like, cannot be very far apart. Mm-hmm. Or, or should be very far apart, but often it hasn't been. Yes. Um. So, uh, Eros, Star Fox, um, you notice that Eros is the brother of Thanos, right? Mm-hmm. Putting together, like, a, a death and love dichotomy. Yep. Which Jim Starlin was super into. And his power, I feel like his power has, you're you're right, it's more mild, the hypnosis in this, and people are always, like, blinking their eyes and kind of being like, what? <laughs> yeah, he doesn't succeed very much. Yeah, and they kind of write him as, like, a loser, which is part of what's making him work. Yeah. He tries and like you can you can see how like if he if there's a party going on he like might amp the party up a little bit that kind of stuff. Yeah, but he but his 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 powers generally are like purview over love and in later comics he can make anyone fall in love with him and he can make anyone fall in love with anyone else. Oh. Okay. Not great. Well, so where that shows up a lot is in the Dan Slot She-Hulk run, where uh, Eros is being sued by a bunch of the women he hooked up with. <laughs> and again, like as I deal with a lot of stuff from the She-Hulk comic, I don't know if uh, we're using all the same words to describe stuff that we'd be using in today's world, but it's definitely a story about those bad things and not a story that just has those bad things in it. Uh-huh. Of, uh, and like it's about issues of consent mm-hmm. and... Uh, it, you know, it's having an interesting conversation, at the very least. I don't remember exactly where they uh, where they fall on that, except I know that Eros uses his powers and a bunch of people fall in love, but some of them he uses powers on, but some of them he didn't, and it gets wacky. Anyway, what's really interesting to me, though, is when Kieran Gillen brought it back recently, none of that baggage seems to be with him, and he really, like, his power, as Kieran Gillen writes him, seems to be, like, a deeper understanding of the concept of love. Mm. You know what I mean? Are you getting that out of the recent stuff with Eros? Yeah, he's able to kind of tap into how people understand all different forms of love and care and, like, really promote that in people. Like, really encourage encourage love. Yeah, and I what I really like about that overall arc is two things. One, that it's, um, I feel like, a return to the themes that Jim Starlin was trying to get at with his death and love dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Like, making him actually about love and not just, like, a hypnotist rich loser, basically. Like a hedonist. Yeah, like a hedonist. Like, I, I like using him to talk about, like, everything, like, care and, like, the how people relate to each other and express their love in today's society. Or, mm-hmm. Like, that like, seems like a much more worthy and um and then true version of the character than this which is pretty funny uh <laughs> where he's where like his powers they're like oh we can't write those powers let's just see them as a joke i mean it's fun seeing him as a joke but yeah but it's a little bit for me like oh she hulk is such a dumb name i can't believe she would name herself she hulk kind of 
Yeah. But you're right. It's really kind of astonishing at how carefully this story walks the line. And I've got to attribute a bunch of that to uh, Roger Stern and Al Milgram, the writer and the artist on this, because I've read a couple other Roger Stern stories and they're fun. Hmm. This is, I think this might be the first one. And after reading these, I kind of want to read more issues of the Avengers. Like, I don't really care about this. What was his name? Death. Death something. Maelstrom. No, not Maelstrom. The the one who kills Maelstrom uh, with his with his spooky shadow spear. What's his um, face? Death, Death Urge. Urge. I mean, I love that name. I don't really care what's going on with Death Urge. But, like, I want to see more of Monica Rambeau. I want to see what the hell is going on with Smiling Creepy Vision. Uh, Al Milgram makes... Al Milgram and Joe Sanat makes the vision so creepy here. And and there's a um the Scarlet Witch Vision drama hits a height in West Coast Avengers where they're shortly going to transfer. Ooh, that's exciting. And like in West Coast Avengers, they're all living in like a big mansion together in California and they're like <laughs> embracing that Cali lifestyle. It's like one of those books, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Where they're roommates too. And it's like a mm. But okay. anyway, um I think there's Well, this is we've been talking a lot about the Avengers side of things and not so much the eternal side of things. Uh, I guess in part because the eternal side of things is really, you know, they're, they're just, again, setting up where the Eternals are going to go. Everyone's having this like big debate over what they should be doing. And then they form the Unimind. But I think this is the best way they've used the Unimind so far. Uh, yeah. Tell me, uh, tell me more. Well, I'm still not sold on the Unimind. Well, I don't know about the Unimind's like actual existence, but the usage of the Unimind as this big debate chamber, like they sold me more on it, and I'm I'm sad we didn't get to see inside of it because we were distracted instead by Maelstrom and his energy zapping powers. You know, it had to be more of an Avengers book. But the implication of the, you know, the what was going on in there, it didn't feel like I'm Zerus, I'm calling this and I'm going to tell you all what to do. It's more it felt more like the democratic idea that the Unimind was trying to convey at first. Yeah, it's so weird how muddled this has all been, because yeah. like if they had I feel like if they had done all of these things right the first time, we could like do so much more with this story. But we're always spending time mopping up the mess of the last one. Yeah. That that really is what a lot of this is. Uh, or, like, advancing what happened in the what-if stuff. Like, in this case, this establishes and solidifies the uh, distance, or not the distance, the point between Alar's leaving and then Thanos existing. This connects those dots fully. Yeah, so weird. Again, like, the breadcrumb scattering is so weird of uh, following the story. Yeah. I see why in, like, the early 2010s they kept on uh, publishing little Thanos one-shots and miniseries that covered a bunch of the story. (laughs) Yeah, you can even see... I didn't notice when I was first reading. You can see Thanos in the background. He looks just kind of like this, like, raisin kid. He kind of looks like a raisin adult. Yeah. But there, there he is. He's just kind of like snuck into the background there. He's the only the only figure that's like actually colored, other than you know Alars and uh, Suisan, who was the final remnant of the Uranus whatever. I don't know. It's nice that they they're not like really getting into the weeds with it, giving enough broad strokes to construct the story, but leaving other places where the imagination can be filled in, or they can go back in other stories. I don't think enough stories nowadays do that well. I think they either over-explain, they go in and they're like, we have to account for every single detail, or they're like, eh, we'll just give you this, but then the details are missing. doesn't feel like they're being left out for whatever reason. It just feels like they're being glossed right over. Like the, the creators didn't think about even caring about it. Well, and uh, giving the Eternals a history is really helping them feel more like characters because uh, I feel like uh, the Jack Kirby run and then the Thor stuff really like yada yada at a certain point. Yeah, because they're just supposed to be their gods. They're here. You know the well, rest. Well, it's like we replaced people mixed us up throughout uh, history. You know, like it happened once. We won't show you it happening, of course. No, but, uh, of course it's really. Not. We're, yeah, a lot of telling and not showing, and this is showing us something, and, and, and it's giving them a history, and it's giving them relationships, and that's what a story is made out of. Mm-hmm. And you can also tell that, like, they really like Cersei, 
And Icarus has to be there because he's the poster child for the Eternals. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, comic book industry's fixation with uh, keeping white guys front and present <laughs> is... Uh, is it really is really true? <laughs> you yeah. go back through history and find it a lot of times. You really, you really want. You're like, why does Icarus keep coming back? Well, it's because he was there at the beginning. That's the only he's there reason. At the beginning, and he he's got a good costume design. Yeah, he does have a good costume design. I think that's eighty percent of it. Yeah, he also has the most defined personality that easily work that like easily works for exposition. Like he could be in any situation, and you just be like, oh yeah, he works. Like, if you had Sprite there all the time, you'd get pretty annoyed pretty fast. That's true. Sprite's main personality trait is annoying. Mm-hmm. But Cersei, I could see more Cersei. She's great. And Cersei, Cersei sticks with the Avengers for a little bit in this run. Yeah, I I did not realize that both Cersei and Star Fox were major Avengers for a good long while. The only reason I knew that is because I used to do Sporkles, where you have to name every single character who's ever been an official member of every superhero roster. Oh my god. Um, really great for knowing obscure Thomas trivia about surprising people who joined the Avengers and when. Like, all four of the Fantastic Four had been on the Avengers, but not at the same time and not when you would think. Huh. That's weird. And Spider-Man first joined the Avengers in the 80s, but it didn't really stick because a big part of the story of Spider-Man was that he didn't join the Avengers. <laughs> um, but that's silly now, right? But you can't have Avengers without Spider-Man these days. I guess. I don't think he's part of the Avengers. I don't think, like, under Aaron, I don't think he's been part of the Avengers. I think You're he's right. there. You're right. I'm just thinking of uh, from 2004 to, like, 2016. Mm. Secret Wars. Change that. Yeah, Secret Wars. Yeah, uh, Aaron. God, Aaron's been writing this for a long time, hasn't he? Yeah, he, I, didn't he just hit like issue sixty or something? Yeah. Are we gonna do a big wrap up episode for that? Uh, probably. That sounds something worth doing. The last thing, I, important thing, I wanted to mention on my notes was um, Maelstrom. That's the guy. You remember him from Guardians? No. When Moondragon dies, Alars then kills <gasps> oh! Philavel. Was he? Was he out with? Uh... Fuck. What's his name? Not Eternity, Obsidian? No, not Eter- Eternity or Obsidian. Um, but the, uh, the opposite of Eternity, whatever. Now you got me uh, with it on this. Um, Maelstrom, the servant of... Destiny? Not Destiny. Destruction? Now you're just naming Sandman Endless. <laughs> Dream? Oblivion. Ob- Oblivion, not Obsidian. Oblivion, yeah, I guess Obsidian was kind of close. Um, Yeah, uh, Maelstrom is like the herald of... Um, oblivion yeah and he's the one who gave uh moon dragon her life back and then is the one who uh revived thanos to kill phyla yes 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 i remember that so i was just excited to see him because uh he, when he shows up in guardians you're kind of like i don't know who this guy is and you're not doing a great job at establishing him he just he's like a weird uh cosmic being but now but now with this you're like all right he's been doing the same weird bullshit the entire time and he's kind of a jobber yep that's his whole thing his whole thing is to be there and then to be killed it seems and then resurrected yeah his wiki page specifies that he's died a lot of times <laughs> uh but where we leave the eternals this time is they are flying off into space except for like five of them that remain on earth uh and that basically is solving their well why don't they do anything problem not a great solution but i wrote i don't know if banishing the eternals is the most story choice you could do but at least it's something yep what are we reading next? <laughs> That's a good question. It's like, wh- where do we go from here? What are they doing? And what's this Dreaming Celestial? Because our trade is called the Dreaming Celestial Saga, but, you know, we haven't really encountered the titular Dreaming Celestial, at least not in any meaningful way. Well, we are coming back with the next legitimate Eternal series, Eternals Volume 2. It was a maxi series. It was 12 issues. Uh, so we're going to be reading that. It's the second, well, kind of the second two-thirds of the Eternals Dreaming Celestial Saga trade. Uh, you can also find it on Marvel Unlimited uh, and and or in the Eternals Complete Saga Omnibus if you can find it, because those hardcover Omnibi go out of print so fast. Immediately. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we're going to be doing in two episodes. But right. next time, we're taking a bit of a break, uh, and we're going to be you know, ringing in the new year with our 2023 predictions for Marvel. 
Uh, we're going to take a little bit of time, make sure the year is over, and then we're going to come back with our results for 2022. But before that, you know, we're going to you know, we're gonna gonna read the read the tea leaves, see what's see what's coming, and see how wrong we can be in twenty twenty three. I, yeah, it's it's the stakes have never been higher. Yeah, I don't know what we're gonna do for for punishment that time. You know, uh, if you die in the prediction game, you die in real life. Oh gosh, oh gosh. Where can they find you on the larger interwebs? Unless you had something else. I well, I so I I guess first to say uh, I can be found on multiversitycomics.com. dot com. Um, recently. There's been uh, some ripples happening on the website twitter.com where my account has not been deleted. I'm still at rambling underscore moose, but I do not know if I will be tweeting next week. Um, My sister was until very recently a Twitter employee. Oh, 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 and uh, yeah, by the time this comes out, she will no longer be. Uh, And uh, yeah, I just like I don't know what the future of my social media uh, looks like. Um, but you can also find me at ramblingmoose.tumblr.com, where I like hanging out sometimes, and on multiversitycomics.com. And I also just wanted to mention that I've been playing Marvel Snap. Have you heard about Nar- Marvel Snap, Elias? No, what is that? That is a new cell phone game. It's like a card game from the creator of Hearthstone, which is a fun card game. And um, and it's like a really simple, easy-to-get-into addictive Marvel cell phone game that I've been playing just like while I'm doing random shit and waiting in the waiting room or whatever. And um, it's got such interesting, obscure pulls, and the characters' powers are, like, so funny. There, there's a Mr. Sinister card that makes clones of himself. And um, I can't—now I'm on the spot, but uh, you had, there's a Wolfsbane who can turn into five wolves, because that's a thing she can do. Oh, my goodness. It's, yeah, really fun card game if you want to waste your time with it. I love how—there's just a bunch of people—I saw that the Infininauts was tra- trending on the Marvel Wiki, and that's because they just added his card to the game. That's wild. Yeah, I, I'm I'm still reeling that Marvel has released a trading card game app, even though that makes complete sense. I don't know why, like it just isn't sticking in my brain. Um, yeah, because you got better things to do, like read every comic ever published. Where can folks find you on the interweb? Well, they can find me on Twitter at Quetzalish. That's Q U E T Z E L I S H. Uh, I finally learned how to schedule tweets just in time for it all to go boom. So we'll see if I'm still there anywhere. Maybe I'll be on Pillow Fort at some point. Maybe I'll be a Mastodon. Maybe I'll resurrect my my own Tumblr. I, I doubt that yes. last part. <laughs> I doubt that last part. Um, but who knows? We, we will keep you appraised here. Uh, at Make Mine Multiversity. But until then, Excelsior.